Well, welcome to another episode of Bretonomics. Um, this is a podcast series sponsored by the Bretton Woods Committee. I'm Nancy Jacklin, hosting the series. In this first group of podcasts, we've been examining the international cooperative framework for international monetary and, and financial affairs, in which the International Monetary Fund has a central role. Today, we're going to be considering the role of the IMF in relation to its low-income countries. My guest expert for this conversation is Siddharth Tiwari, who had a long and distinguished career at the IMF, including as head of the operations of, of the African Department, as head of the Strategy, Policy, and Review Department, which the insiders call the Thought Police. Uh, subsequently, he's been the Executive Secretary of the G20 Eminent Persons Group on the Global Financial Architecture and the Chief Representative for Asia for the Bank for International Settlements. Siddharth currently is an Associate Fellow at Chatham House in London and a Senior Advisor to India's G20 Sherpa. And that actually is a big deal because India is chairing the G20 at this time and the Sherpa is really the chief honcho in trying to move that process along. Siddharth is also a vice president of the uh, International Finance Forum in Beijing. So I'm delighted Siddharth is able to take the time and share with us his deep experience. Low income countries, as you all know, obtain technical assistance and financial resources from a wide range of institutions. There are grants and loans from uh, other governments through their bilateral aid programs. There's financing and assistance from non-governmental bodies such as Oxfam, Doctors Without Borders, the Gates Foundation, and many others. There's indirect assistance versus gov uh, through government uh, export guarantee agencies. And there's multilateral financing and assistance from development banks like the World Bank and from UN agencies, as well as obtaining private sector loans and investments and those often carry with them foreign government or multilateral guarantees or co-financing. Well, today we want to understand the IMS unique role in that broader ecosystem. Later podcasts will consider other institutions with major roles in economic development. So Siddharth, can you give us a sense of what this IMF role is in engaging with low-income countries? Nancy, thank you for inviting me to the Bretonomics uh, podcast series and to this episode on IMF's uh, work on low-income countries. In the last 80 years since the IMF has uh, been alive, uh, its work on low-income countries has come a long way. Uh, I think it's fair to say that today low-income countries occupy a central part in IMF's work. Broadly speaking, IMF's work falls into three buckets. One, it's dialogue with low-income countries on policy issues that provides continuous monitoring of member countries' economic policies and their impact on growth and stability. In addition, in 2015, the international community agreed to what is called the Sustainable Development Goals, these are 17 goals to be achieved by 2030, which call for action to end poverty, inequality, protect the planet, and ensure that all people enjoy health, justice, and prosperity. 
and therefore the IMF dialogue with low-income countries also covers the sustainable development goals. And all of this culminates in what is called the Article 4 consultation, which is the institutional view on a country's economic policies. Two, the IMF has three concessional facilities and one non-financial facility to support its members. The three concessional facilities provide financial support over the medium term, the short term, and to meet urgent needs. And Nancy, you will recall from your years on the executive board that the IMF also has a non-financial facility called the policy support instrument. Can you explain to the listeners the purpose of that new of that instrument? Uh, yeah, the policy support instrument uh, is for countries that do not need IMF financial support, but desire to signal their commitment to a reform agenda to either unlock financing from official creditors or from the private sector investors. Well, as part of this podcast series, I've kind of advertised it as, as giving the listeners an understanding of how institutions get some important stuff done. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about how you and I help get that done. Absolutely. And the origin uh, of, of it was really a report produced by the Independent Evaluation Office, which is kind of a, uh, an independent assessor uh, of policies and operations at the fund. And they'd done a report called Prolonged Use of IMF Resources, which brought out the point that uh, some low-income countries for decades had been uh, having sort of continuous um, uh, rollovers of IMF programs. And the real motivator for that had been foreign aid agencies that wanted to have uh, assurance that they were providing their aid in the context of sound economic policies and the country's concern. Um, but the, the, the reports sort of basically implied that this was a perversion of fund, of fund financing. Right. And, and I agreed, but I thought that the need for the signaling, the need for that kind of uh, structure uh, was sound, but that you didn't have to increase the debt of these countries or use what are scarce resources, including scarce concessional resources for this purpose. And happily, you agreed, <laughs> and we went to work. Um, now, for the U.S. executive director to see a report and say, this is a good idea, it's not just going to happen. So I had to convince uh, the bosses at the Treasury Department. They had to make sure the rest of the U.S. government was on board. A foreign aid agency started to complain, what are you doing to us, and all of that. Uh, and then we had to get other countries on board. So the G7 finance ministers uh, discussed the proposals. Uh, and they had to make sure their aid agencies could live with this change. Uh, we then had to make sure that the, that the users, in fact, thought this was a good idea. And many of them, including um, uh, Ms. Ngozi, who was then the finance minister of Nigeria, was delighted because she felt it gave the countries a little bit more ownership over their programs uh, and, and thought it was a good change. Uh, we then had lots of negotiations uh, uh, among all of the countries, um, both within the IMF executive board, more senior levels, uh, you had to make sure too that the institution, the management was on board, that this is something that they could do and would want to do. So internally at that point, there was a lot of uncertainty because the institution was 
used to lending and thought that um, the strength of the institution lay in the money it put out. And our own view was that the strength of the institution lay in the ideas they put out. And money was a complement to the ideas. And it did take uh, internally to a bit of time because staff were unsure whether uh, we were going to lose our impact. Yeah. But, but it worked. And as you said, uh, with uh, Nkozi in Nigeria, it was immensely uh, helpful. Yeah. So this is so that's sort of the story of how we get how we get stuff done, which we thought was important at the time. Um, now I wonder if um, uh, you can talk about the third item related to the IMF's work with the so uh, the countries. third item is that a significant part of IMF's work in low-income countries is for capacity development to help countries design and implement sound economic policies to secure high growth, reduce poverty, and achieve the sustainable development goals. And this, largely speaking, has uh, two building blocks to it. Um, one is institutional strengthening, and the second is strengthening human capital to implement those policies. Okay, that's great. So that's a great overview of the three basic functions or activities of the fund. Now let's talk about some specifics. The IMF, um, as you said, and as we've heard in our earlier uh, podcast, conducts annual surveillance reviews of all members' economic policies as part of their obligations in the fund under Article 4 of the Charter, which is why it's called Article 4 Consultations. Right. And that oh, is the oversight different for low-income countries compared to others, either in focus or emphasis? So the work of the IMF has evolved, as I mentioned earlier, uh, tremendously. At the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, where the IMF was created, the focus was to avoid disastrous competitive currency and trade policies that were pursued before the war. Countries with temporary moderate balance of payments uh, deficits were expected to make the needed policy changes in an orderly manner with the help of IMF financing these deficits, rather than by imposing exchange controls or devaluations or deflationary economic policies that could spread to other countries. I think it's fair to say that when you read the deliberations in 1944, um, the challenges of low-income countries were not on the minds of the founders. Yeah. So. What are the principal challenges of these countries and, and why are they different? The reason that they are different is that at the early stage of a country's development, price signals do not transmit to, through the economy as they transmit in advanced economies. Uh, put differently, the market functions inefficiently or doesn't function at all. So I'll give you an example. Uh, very early in my career, I was working on Sierra Leone, and as a newly minted Chicago PhD, I fast realized the limits of my training in Sierra Leone. Uh, Sierra Leone was not alone in this. Uh, many of these countries were often coming out of prolonged conflict as they got independent. Uh, these were countries where institutions and the rule of law were still developing. And since they were at early stages of their career, 
of their development, their education and health systems were also in a formative stage. Many of these countries in Africa and the Caribbean were also commodity producers with very little buffers, which made them very vulnerable to economic and health shocks. So in spite of all of this, till the 1980s, either tackling poverty or fostering economic growth remained outside IMF's mandate, and its usual analytical framework focused on growth and stability. So then what changed the, what and when did the IMF approach change? So the IMF approach changed in the 1980s when it was accepted that structural distortions were a major impediment for low-income countries' growth. Thus, the greater emphasis was put on structural reforms to remove inefficiencies, distortions, and rigidities that stifled the economy's growth. I'll give you one example from my early days on working on Tanzania. When I started to work on Tanzania, the, we had two major challenges. One was to convince the government to remove physical barriers outside each district so that each district could specialize in what they did best and trade with other districts that specialized in what they did best. And this is something we learned many decades or centuries earlier, that they are tremendous gains from trade. And districts are better off, citizens are better off. Two, uh, maize pricing, maize is the staple food in Tanzania. Uh, maize pricing should reflect acquisition costs rather than have one subsidized price throughout the country. And frankly, the residents of Dar es Salaam don't need to be subsidized. So the development of IMF's annual surveillance of economic policies also changed to, to include these developments. More and more focus was on structural reforms, poverty reduction, and the attainment of the strict sustainable development goals. Well, in, in uh, earlier podcasts, we also learned that the IMF engages in multilateral surveillance, including looking at the kind of flowback effects of one country's policies on another. Is there multilateral surveillance in the low-income country context? Uh, absolutely. So there are two parts uh, to this question. First, as I mentioned earlier, uh, low-income countries have very low sh or very shallow uh, capital markets and the absence of financial buffers or reserves to accommodate shocks. So managing inward spillovers is uh, absolutely crucial for economic stability. For example, last year when Russia exposed restrictions on the export of grains from Ukraine, the shops in Africa reflected this in a matter of days. So the impact of negative inward spillovers is a very important part of IMF's work in low-income countries. And uh, the work on spillovers and spillbacks has become a standard part of the bilateral surveillance work. Second, uh, there are common currency areas within low-income countries like the Eurozone. 
the one in the Caribbean and one in Western Africa come to mind. And the IMF engages with these bodies as part of its surveillance work. And third, which is more recent in the last 10, 15 years, each of the area departments has started to focus on regional surveillance within their regions. And there is an annual report that's produced and with which they engage with regional bodies. That's, that's great. Now, now, now let's talk about the second area of, of IMF engagement, which is in, in terms of financing. And low-income countries are eligible for the same balance of payments adjustment financing as any other IMF member. Uh, but given their economic circumstances, are there also special IMF facilities available, uh, particularly, as you mentioned earlier, on concessional terms? Uh, yes. So under the Articles of Agreement, uh, all IMF members are eligible to access the resources in the general resources account. And no distinction is made uh, to accessing these resources according to either income levels or other uh, criteria. So therefore, if certain benefits such as subsidized interest rates or different maturities are to be accorded to a special group of countries that are below our income threshold, it needs to be done through a segregated account, which is called trust funds in the IMF, that are stated for the that are set up for the stated purpose and generally financed by voluntary contributions from wealthier countries. Concessional financing for developing countries meeting specific income and market access criteria is provided under what's called the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust or the PGRT. And how big is the lending capacity supported by this trust? So the average lending capacity is about $2 billion annually, and the IMF has made strenuous efforts to make the PRGT self-financing so that countries and investors know that this pool of money is there for the long haul rather than subject to periodic negotiations. But in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, the IMF provided financial support to a majority of low-income countries at a rate of about six times wow. the annual average, somewhere around 12 to 14 billion. So the challenge ahead is to find subsidies resources for this level of lending. Another question that arises when one thinks about IMF financing is really what's the difference in the role of the IMF's financing in low-income countries compared to the role of development banks, which we'll talk about in subsequent podcasts. So uh, all the work that the IMF does is to promote its central goal, which is to promote world trade, investment, and economic growth by maintaining an open exchange and trade system with the belief that stable and predictable economic and financial environment is key for private sector-led growth. Importantly, IMF's universal membership and its surveillance activities in 190 members give it a unique position to have a global a regional and a country-specific view 
and everything derives from this goal but is tailored to the each individual country's circumstances. So the IMF lends to ensure a stable and sustainable macroeconomic position. This usually means external deficits that can be financed by spontaneous capital flows, fiscal deficits that can be financed by non-inflation financing, and debt positions that are sustainable without undue financial strain. And the IMF lends in, in support of these goals. On the other hand, development banks lend for development purposes, whether it's policy-based or project-based lending. And their lending is really important to support the change in the real economy on the ground, like deregulating the transport sector, or as I talked about it before, removing physical barriers outside uh, districts and allowing people to trade, or the deregulation of the telecommunication system that has been a major issue in low-income countries. Development banks do not have the mandate, nor the resources, nor the expertise to lend for balance of payments disequilibriums. Their lending also tends to be for a much longer period of time than the IMF loans. That's great. That's that, that uh, that's the clearest description of the differences I think I've ever heard. And and the and the IMF's perspective really is uh, is on uh, global global stability, global strength, and how all the parts fit together. And, right. and the financing is all part of that um, uh, part of that ethos of what the IMF does. So now we've got the third area, and this is the IMF's technical assistance, or what's now called capacity development. Uh, and it serves the entire membership, too, and only half of the assistance goes to low-income countries. In the 1950s, for example, a lot of advice was provided to European countries who uh, still had capital controls in place um, after the war and needed to look at how to phase those out to meet the obligations of the new par value system. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, technical assistance to build up institutions and markets was provided to the ex-Soviet states when they became IMF members. So advice on a range of tax, fiscal, debt management, financial sector, and other technical economic policy matters are provided widely by the IMF to its membership. So what kind of technical assistance Siddharth is provided to low-income countries by the fund, and how is it financed? So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, IMF's capacity development is available to all of its members. And as you look back at some point, uh, all members have benefited from this. And in fact, I vividly recall uh, this was the end of 1992 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, I found myself in Moscow as the IMF resident representative there when the experiment uh, to move to a market economy was just beginning. And a major part of our work there was capacity development. And within that, a major part of the work was to put into place a payment system, both for Russia and as well as for uh, states of the uh, former Soviet Union. 
So um, IMF's work on capacity development consists of one, uh, technical assistance that's aimed at enhancing institutional capacity, and two, training that is aimed at enhancing human capacity to be able to implement uh, change. And unlike surveillance and lending activities, where both the IMF and the member country have a formal obligation to fulfill, capacity development is totally voluntary, and it starts with a request uh, from the country. It's provided at no cost to almost all the countries, and it's financed through a combination of IMF's own resources, as well as resources provided by donors, which today account for about 55% of the spend. Can you give us a kind of a bird's eye view of capacity development in the IMF? Because I, I think this is an area that doesn't get much focus or press play. And it's so critical and important uh, to the success of economies uh, to have strong institutions and, and, um, and, uh, and as you said, educated policymakers. Absolutely. So I think it's uh, all the work has shown that countries that differentiate themselves along the development path are those that have strong institutions and the rule of law. It's the basic uh, foundation of uh, good economies. So IMS work in this area, um, uh, maybe six headlines to look at. One, it's significant. Uh, it'll surprise our listeners uh, to know that it accounts for over a third of IMF's budget, more than what the institution spends on surveillance or on program activities for which it is right. really known. That's the administrative budget, basically, right. the Absolutely. staffing costs. Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, second, it's widely delivered in the year 2022 uh, financial year. 166 of 190 members benefited from this. A third, it's multifaceted. In the same year, it was delivered through 37 work streams, uh, through 84 courses in a classroom-like setting uh, that were delivered in seven languages. And the IMF has made a massive use of uh, the massive online courses, MOOCs, uh, 64 of them in six languages uh, that year. It's incentive in, intensive uh, that uh, average CD recipient in the 25th percentile, 25th percentile has benefited from 13 capacity development projects. And it's delivered through different modalities that can be delivered either from headquarters or regional capacity development centers, virtually or via expert visits, and when needed, continuously via in-country technical advisors. Most of the focus uh, now is on developing countries. The IMF has six regional training centers in Africa five in Asia, two in the Middle East, and one each in the Caribbean, Central America, and the Pacific. Uh, in the IMF itself, uh, uh, 
uh, as you know from your days on the board, uh, staff writes a lot. <laughs> and executive directors read a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2022, there were 1,000 technical assistance reports, and that gives you a sense of... Uh, of, the, of the volume and the mass. I mean, it's yeah. really stunning. And and I said, I think this is important work, and, it, and it's important that that, that a value that the IMF is adding to the system is, is well-recognized. So now tell me... Um, how does the IMF's capacity development differ from that provided by others to these low-income countries? So similar to its lending activities, the IMF works in many ways to strengthen capacity of its members, to design and implement sound economic and financial policies. So it provides a capacity development in traditional areas of its competence, such as revenue administration, public finance management, macroeconomic statistics, financial supervision and regulation, central bank operations, tax policy, financial integrity. And in recent uh, years, emerging areas such as digital currencies and climate change, the core goal of capacity development, like surveillance, like its lending activities, is to strengthen the country's ability to implement sustainable macroeconomic and financial policies. Other institutions provide assistance on a micro level. The IMF does it to maintain the system intact. Yeah, that's great. So in, in a prior podcast, we talked about the IMF's uh, central role in, in uh, restructuring debt. Uh, when a country finds that they're under extreme uh, debt distress and there is an effort not to uh, default, but to find a way to, uh, to uh, refinance or reschedule their loans. Um, a major effort was made uh, in the 2000s in dealing with the debt of uh, highly indebted uh, low-income countries called the Highly Indebted uh, Poor Countries Initiative or HIPIC. Uh, and it was intended to address what were really unbearable debt burdens, uh, but in the framework of the countries adopting policies that were aimed to get them on a more sustainable path to economic growth. And this initiative was an international and multi-creditor effort uh, that extended over many years. What was the IMF's role in it and uh, in this much larger framework? So one thing I can tell you is that from my first few missions that were in Africa as a junior entry-level economist in the IMF till my last engagement as head of SPR, uh, debt and excessive debt and debt relief was a recurring theme right. <laughs> over three decades. Yes. In low-income countries, emerging markets, middle-income right. countries, it's happened again and again. And uh, it's been similar in IMF's work with low-income countries. Almost always debt distress has its root in poor policies, incomplete program implementation, unproductive borrowing. And I mean, this is an example of borrowing for bridges to nowhere roads to nowhere. Yes. 
and they're visible. They're visible in the Americas and Asia and Africa. And finally, importantly, uh, for external sharks. So it's the accepted wisdom that when countries run into debt difficulties, uh, an orderly debt workout is always, always preferable to any disorderly default. And to get an orderly workout done, two things have to fall into place. One is to ensure that the country's implemented the right policies that can be financed by official and private sector flows that precludes this from happening again and again. And the job of the IMF is to ensure that the right policy framework has been put in place and enough financing is available to support that, those change in policies. And second, there needs to be sufficient creditor coordination to deliver that relief because if each creditor holds out, uh, it's going to be difficult. So for creditor coordination, the so-called Paris Club, uh, which was begun largely as a group of European creditors dealing with excessive levels of debt owed to them by Brazil in the 1950s, evolved into a public sector creditor club to deal with debt distress in low and middle income countries. First, in, in, in the story of the low income countries, Paris Club rescheduled debt. So these were year by year reschedulings. And as it got more difficult, especially for low income countries, it forgave debt owed to these creditor countries. But it's important to note that um, the IMF does not lend for profit. Um, uh, it lends and it is in countries when creditors are fleeing and it led, lends at a fraction of the rates that are prevailing at that point. Therefore, uh, the IMF and the multilateral development banks were never covered by the Paris Club because these institutions were considered as preferred creditors because of the role they play that I just described. Yeah, I mean, both, both the, the, the regional banks and the fund really are, are part of core architecture for creating a policy framework for the global system as a whole. Absolutely. So... So uh, then, so then, what happened? I mean, they were they were doing the Paris Club was doing these um, sort of year by year reschedulings. Then they started forgiving debt. Was that enough? What happened after no, that? No, that wasn't enough <laughs> because, as I told you, in my over thirty year career in the IMF, <laughs> this was a recurring yes. theme. So um, there were pressures on the IMF and the development banks to follow suit. Um, but the structure of relief needed uh, needed to respect the preferred creditor status of uh, the IMF. So, for example, the loan forgiveness was financed with contributions uh, to a trust from wealthier members uh, that could be used to repay a debt that was being forgiven. And this was done, as you mentioned, through the HIPAC initiative, which linked debt relief to economic policy commitments of debtors 
so that future debt uh, would be sustainable. But the HIPIC initiative came under massive criticism for offering too little, too slowly, and to too few countries. Only four countries obtained a full stock of available debt relief before the end of the century. So this was the 90s. So in 1999, the initiative was enhanced by lowering the bar. And when you lower the bar, to judge whether debt is sustainable or not. When that bar is lowered, it covers more countries, it provides more debt relief and grants, and it provides it sooner to qualifying countries. By 2002, the enhanced HIPIC initiative had delivered almost a billion in debt relief to 25 countries. Yeah, and unfortunately, the saga continued. Absolutely. <laughs> So the story doesn't uh, end here. Uh, external pressures kept mounting that multilateral institutions by now were not part of a solution, but were the problem themselves as they were in many countries, the largest creditors. A few years later, the Bretton Woods institutions and the African Development Bank launched what is called the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative to provide further debt relief by canceling all debt owed to by eligible countries to these institutions. So by early 2006, the IMF delivered about three and a half billion in debt relief to 19 countries, and it was the first multilateral institution to do so. And as I, I mentioned with the, with the policy support instrument creation, Getting this done also required using all of the all of the bodies and and uh, frameworks for collaboration and cooperation and diplomacy that we have. So uh, the G7 and the G20 and the uh, IMF institutionally and the executive boards of the institutions were all actively involved in trying to uh, negotiate a framework that would be acceptable to to the Absolutely. community as a whole. Um, the, the next thing I uh, uh, like to talk about on, on debt relief for low-income countries is, is after this major relief was put into place, what was done to try to assure that this would not be a recurring problem? Was there, what, was there some framework put in place to try to to get policies on the right, right track? So the, I think the staff realized that... Um, <laughs> two competing goals needed to be balanced. Um, one was to provide um, financing to meet these ambitious uh, sustainable development goals that required um, sizable public investments to fill the infrastructure gaps and strengthen potential growth. With limited official money, <clears throat> low-income countries were increasingly looking at domestic as well as non-concessional external borrowing to fill these gaps. So on one hand, there was the need for money and, and the avenues for getting these money, this money were different. They were domestic and non-concessional external. 
On the other hand, these past cycles of repeated borrowing and debt relief needed to be stopped. So this led to the creation of the Low Income Countries Debt Sustainability Framework, which is a macroeconomic framework to assist countries and creditors with both assessing the debt servicing capacity of the country and therefore the financing strategies and the accompanying risks. And just as an aside, uh, this framework was later developed for market access countries and widely used in the Eurozone crisis for Greece and yeah. other countries. So going back to low-income countries, the IMF and the World Bank uh, use this framework extensively to inform their own macroeconomic advice and their own lending to countries. In the context of IMF programs, and this is fairly controversial, but in the context of IMF programs, this framework also guides setting borrowing limits for concessional and non-concessional financing. This, these efforts have gone a long way in managing debt sustainability, but they only work if all debt is transparent and is included in the base, and there are no surprises as you go along that you find debt that was not included. Yeah, well, apparently we have. So <laughs> have, the, have the newer lenders like China and India really been fully integrated into this framework as creditors? Uh, no, not fully. Um, so uh, two points here. One, that there's been a major change in the composition of creditors for low-income countries external debt owed to Paris Club creditors that we talked about has sharply fallen in the last 15 countries. 15 years, yeah. In the last 15 <laughs> years, yes, sorry. Yeah. And the share of loans by China and Euro bonds sold to private creditors has increased rapidly. And second, debt transparency has been a major issue. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw this in, in a number of the low-income countries in the last year or so, and, and there was a major issue recently in the case of Sri Lanka, where Chinese lending on non-concessional and perhaps one could say extractive terms kind of pushed Sri Lanka over the edge. Um, one basic, I won't say it's a problem, but I'd say one basic characteristic we have to understand about the debt sustainability analysis is that it's just that, it's analysis. And like IMF surveillance, um, the IMF cannot impose these limits and constraints on borrowers or creditors. All they can do is um, uh, call out dangerous high debt situations when they occur um, and also trust that countries will disclose fully the level and terms of their debt. And it hasn't happened in particular in connection with uh, lending by China. Uh, another problem is, as you said, is China's a relatively new as a major creditor. And it hasn't been part of the Paris Club experience over the last 20 years of trying to cope with conflicting needs of financing low-income countries, but also dealing with debt relief in a way that is kind of fair and equitable so that deals can get done and debt relief can happen yeah. uh, and, and to have some reasonable burden sharing by all. So, you know, I agree we really need to find a way to sort all this, this out and get things back on a proper track. 
Uh, where are we on the overall situation today, Siddharth? So, um, overall, there's been major backsliding. Uh, debt ratios of low-income countries have increased uh, significantly, partly reversing the decline that we saw in the early 2000s. Large borrowings, including from new creditors, the economic shocks of COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine have pushed the system right to the edge. I think more than 50% of low-income countries today are either in a state of high risk of debt distress or already in debt distress. And so for the next uh, year or two, this is going to be a major challenge with fiscal buffers that have been used up with uh, aid from donor countries that is going to Ukraine and with other uh, buffers that have been used uh, both for climate change, COVID and the war in Ukraine. Yeah, lots of challenges out yeah. there. So uh, looking back, <laughs> now that we've got sort of all of the, all of the bases covered, uh, do you have a view as to how IMF engagement with low-income members has really been most impactful? Uh, Nancy, it's important for our listeners to remember, just 30 years back, the emerging markets of today, China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, they were all developing countries then. Uh, they had the problems of the sorts that we discussed uh, earlier in the podcast. And today, uh, if we look at the last World Economic Outlook or the World Bank forecast, uh, these forecasts in indicate that for the next three or four decades, the bulk of global growth is going to come from the global south. So the same countries that were developing countries 30 years back will now shoulder the growth momentum for the global economy. And this transition will happen for today's low-income countries also. 30 years from today, the, our, our successors who do this podcast will be repeating <laughs> <We hope. laughs> the same story. Yeah. So in low-income countries today, there are two supporting factors that uh, we have not talked about uh, till now. First, uh, they have a demographic dividend. Uh, which is on their side, but the median age of the population in the 30s. And this provides a productive base for the next several decades to support economic growth. Second, technology is playing an extremely important role in enabling these countries at times to leapfrog a traditional evolutionary development process. And I'll give you an example for our listeners to understand what I mean. And this is around India's experience with financial inclusion. So aided by biometric identity, which was tech-based, and aided by a real-time payment system, which is a state-of-the-art payment system, which is again tech-based, India was able to pull in over a billion people. Many of them cannot read or write, but over a billion people into the financial system. 
uh, over a 10-year period. The work done at the BIS shows that had India followed the traditional path of financial deepening education, it would have taken it about 50 years to accompany the same. Yeah, we in the U.S. are still worrying about our unbanked, and I think there's a lesson there. Absolutely, yeah. and so so technology is able to bridge several years, and these countries, low-income countries, do not have legacy tech systems to deal with, and so they'll be able to transition faster. Both of these are very promising for the future, but as I like to say, since I got trained in Chicago, that the basics matter and the basics will remain investing wisely for the future and also how the low-income countries are able to transition to low-carbon economies and deal with the existential threat of climate change, which affects them the most. But having a cooperative international economic institution supportive of orderly change will continue to be essential for successful outcomes. Well, Siddharth, this was really a wonderful conversation, and I want to thank you for giving us a really deep understanding of the IMF's role in low-income countries. Um, in our next episode, we're going to turn to an entirely different institution, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, for which you worked in Asia. Uh, and we're going to explore how that body plays a role in the institutional framework for the international monetary and financial system. I hope our audience will join us again. Thanks. Thank you.